Well, good morning, church family. How are you doing today? Good morning. <laughs> About like the nine o'clock. Anyway, um, it's cold outside. Anyway, so Pastor Brandon is uh, preaching this morning over at Salem Park. And uh, so it's actually his first opportunity to preach over there uh, since we've gone to two locations, one church, two locations. And then so uh, I'm excited about to have the opportunity to be able to share uh, the word with you this morning. Um, so they'll probably wrapping up their service about now, and um, I'm sure they've had a, uh, a, a good one. And uh, anyway, so excited about the word this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 21. And once again, we're in our uh, Advent season. And so some of these passages are passages that are very familiar. Hopefully today, in looking at this passage, we can um, look at it, maybe see it with some fresh eyes. But I just want to encourage us all to just open up our hearts and receive what the Lord would have uh, for us. So um, with that, let's go ahead and read, and then we'll pray, and we'll go ahead and dive uh, right in. So it says, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, starting. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, uh, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to a firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for him in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them in heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And with haste... And with haste they went and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God, praising him for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as your body to be able to worship together, to be able to connect and catch up with one another. And Father, we thank you for your promise that says that wherever your people gather in your name, there you are in the midst of them. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here this morning. Father, I thank you that you know, Lord God, the need of every heart in this room today. 
And Father, as we have worshiped and as we preach the word this morning, Father, I ask that by your spirit that you would strengthen those who need to be strengthened, heal those who need healing, encourage those, Lord Father God, who need to be encouraged, that, Father, that you would do only what you could do, and that is, Lord Father, manifest your glory in our heart. So, Father, we thank you, we give you honor, we give you praise, and it's in Christ's mighty name that we pray. Amen. Um, when I look at this story, I'm reminded of, of, of something in, that, that is basically a truth, which is this, is that often things with people or circumstances are not what they appear. In other words, the outward story, uh, when we're engaging with someone or when we're uh, in, a, in the middle of a situation, uh, the outward story isn't necessarily the whole story. In other words, when we think about the outward story and the things that manifest around us and how people react or how we behave, how we go about things, how we raise our families, how we are as, as friends, how we deal with hard and difficult or tragic circumstances, when we see how people are reacting in that, oftentimes what we don't understand is that there are things that we don't know that they've experienced in the past that actually are driving those behaviors. In other words, there's a story behind the story. There's a story that you see, and there's a story that you interact with, but then there's a whole unseen thing, a whole unspoken thing that you don't necessarily know about, um, and what you're seeing before you is actually being catalyzed by what you don't know or what you don't see. If I was to ask you this morning, and we were sitting down and maybe having some coffee or, or, or some tea, being able to sit down and get to know one another, and I was to ask you, hey, uh, what's your story? What's your story? And, uh, and you would begin to open up to me and tell me about your life and tell me about your experiences and how you were brought up and what it was like for you in high school and if you're married, what family life is like and all these kinds of things. And you would probably begin and you would begin to recount a lot of the highlights, a lot of the things that were momentous and, and happy occasions and positive occasions that happened for you. And as we grew in relationship, you might begin to open up and actually begin to tell me maybe some of the hard things. And I would begin to share with you some of the hard things that I've walked through. I would be able to share with you some of the things that happened, you know, in my life. I had a brother, brother who passed away at age 40 with a brain tumor that my mom, two months after we had buried him, was diagnosed with cancer. She passed away two years after that. And then I had a nephew uh, a year after that who passed away at only 18 months. We would begin to talk about stories and we would share these things. And oftentimes what we, uh, what is just human nature, which is this, is that the the broken parts of our story or the negative aspects of our story or the, the sad things or the, or the things that maybe we have regret or guilt over are the things that oftentimes are most prominent. In other words, these are the things that we have to fight and wrestle against so that they don't define us and actually end up in a situation where we have our past hamstringing our future, that we don't want uh, maybe the betrayal of an old relationship to then make us skittish about entering into a relationship with other people because we've come to this conclusion that all people are just in it for themselves and eventually will betray you. And so my point being here is that in this story that we're seeing this morning out of Luke chapter 1, a story that I'm sure that if you've been in church for any time and if you've watched a Charlie Brown Christmas, you're very familiar with this story. 
But the thing is, is that as we read these words and so forth, we have to understand is that there's a, another story, an even greater story that's at play, that what we're seeing here in this context and what we're, what we're reading about in this particular passage and in the passages that we read in Matthew last week is that we're seeing God's greater story, his greater than story come to bear. See, the main thought that I want all of us to grab hold of this morning, because it's the truth, and this is not meant to be some kind of cheap $2 help, uh, self-help kind of seminar, but it is the gospel, and it's the gospel truth, and the gospel truth is this, is that God's story is greater than. God's story is greater than. Greater than what? Greater than whatever you want to put in that blank. God's story is greater than your brokenness. God's story is greater than the, the sorrow I have over a brother passing away at age 40. God is greater than your failure. God is greater than a sickness. God is greater than any betrayal. God is greater than the, the, the tragedy that came upon you in a moment. God is greater than even your, your, your victories, as, as, as great as they are. God is greater than, and because God is greater than, and because he is sovereign, I can't really necessarily under, uh, uh, explain it. I don't know how he does it, but I know that God is so great that the Bible says that even what the enemy means for evil in our life, God is able to use it for good. And when we think about the totality of God's story, we have to think about the, the movement of God through history. And so we think about creation. We think about uh, 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 in, in the Bible, you have basically four main chapters of God's story. You have the original creation, which God characterizes all good. And I wish I had the opportunity and the time to be able to deep dive what that means, because I think a lot of people, uh, uh, when, we, when we read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and you know, we read the creation story, we read through it, and we lose, uh, we don't necessarily lose the power and the majesty of it, but what we lose is the connection to us. And the one thing I just want to say about the whole creation story is that when God created man, all of other creation, he said, was good, but when he created man, he said man was very good. God scooped down out of the, the, the dust of the ground, and he began to form, and he began to fashion man out of the dust of the ground, and then he blew his very breath into man, signifying that he was giving man the very nature that he had. The original man, Adam and Eve, they had the, the, the nature of God. They had a glory nature, if you will. They had a nature that was 100% uh, unified and in tune with the Father. They were one with the Father, and they had a nature uh, that was good, and their environment was, was, was very good, and everything about uh, uh, their existence in their life was set up so that they could know God, take their satisfaction in God, find their belonging, their identity in God, and the glory of God was their life. They did not know sin. They did not know brokenness. They did not know pain. They had purpose in the garden, and when, and when they went to work, they, they, they worked with gladness because the work of their hands, the, the, uh, the ground in this, in this uh, perfect environment of Eden, the, when they would work and cultivate the ground, the ground would yield 100% yield of harvest and fruit. They didn't have to pluck weeds and all these kinds of things. The, the, everything that they did was favored and it was blessed. And they enjoyed this intimate relationship with God for all the things that they experienced in the garden. The one thing that, that, that was the greatest and most satisfying thing was God coming into the garden and their ability to walk into fellowship and to worship and to love God and be unified with God. In that moment in time, they were one with God. That's how it was originally supposed to be. 
Of course, then we know the second story. It was the story of the fall. At some point in time, Adam and Eve began listening to the wrong voice. And God said, there's a tree right here in the midst of this garden. You are not to eat of it. And God did that not because he's trying to keep something from them, but God is, a, is, God is love. He, he gives them the ability through obedience to be able to choose whether or not they're going to love him. And so... Man is in the garden. The snake is in the garden. You know the story. The snake begins to, to talk to them and begin to weave a different story. And, it, and, the, and the enemy begins to weave a story in their minds of this. It's like, well, you're, you're, you're part of God's story, but you don't know the whole story. God is actually holding out on you. There's some chapters he's leaving out of the book. And actually, you have the ability to begin to write your own story. What would you rather be? Would you rather be a role player or a character in God's story? Or you can write your own story, and you can be the star. You can be the star of your own story. And as Adam and Eve uh, began to, to cultivate this and, it, and uh, they didn't shut it down and they began to entertain this idea of writing their own story to finally one day, I don't know how to, I don't know how to, to express it, I don't know how to explain it, but this is no simple disobedience that happens in the garden. This is a comprehensive defiance. They have to crawl over a divine nature they have to scale over. It might as well have been a 50-foot fence with barbed wire all over it. They had to scale over the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the awesomeness of God in order to get to self because since they, had, since they were given the nature of God, their inclination was to please God and to love God. So the outright rejection of God was the basis of their defiance. That's a big deal. So that's what the Bible calls the fall of man. And of course, Adam and, uh, and Eve had been told by God that in the day that they eat of the tree, in the day that you decide to go it alone, in the day that you reject me and disconnect from my glory, death will ensue. Well, as we know, they didn't just drop down and die right then in that moment, but brokenness entered into the world. Uh, decay enters into the world. And we think about all the brokenness now that we endure or that you endure or that you've experienced in life or that you see in a, in a personal level or that we see on a communal level. All that brokenness winds its way all the way back to this ancient true story of the fall. And whereas man in original creation, his reference point and his identity and his satisfaction and the definition of who he was was rooted in the glory of God, now it's been uprooted for that and man's definition is himself and his experience. That's how life is today, as I said in the beginning. So oftentimes, what we work with today is fighting against the brokenness that we endure on a day-to-day -day level defining us. That the brokenness, resisting the brokenness defining us. There's a book uh, written uh, that goes through and it's written by a guy named Robert Chung. Robert is a, is a, uh, is, he's, he's a, uh, a theologian. He's, he's, he's also a, a counselor. But in his book uh, on, called Restore, he talks about that from the fall, that generally speaking, that now all brokenness, temptation, and sin falls under one of six, one of six what he calls common struggles. These are 
these are, if you will, just large buckets to begin to dump experience into. And so the, the first bucket is the bucket of, of fantasy. And fantasy is refusing to accept or address your actual situation. And instead of seeking a different reality, that is uh, uh, seeking a different reality in order to escape. The result of a fantasy is that many times people then will struggle with dis, dis, uh, discontentment. They're never satisfied. They're always looking for the next thing. As I talk about these things, see if you find your story in here anywhere. They always are dreaming of a better life, so they go to one thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, because they got to have something new in order to feed that fantasy. There's always, the grass is always greener. The second common struggle is guilt. Guilt, sort of self-evident. Guilt is pain from knowing that you've done something wrong. No need to ask for a show of hands of how many people have done something wrong, because it's all of you. It's all of me. Something wrong all the time, right? The pain from knowing you've done something wrong. The pain of regret, the pain of condemnation, the pain of not being better, the pain of disappointing, the pain of disobedience is guilt. The third common struggle is shame. Shame is a pain that comes from uh, uh, who you are or who you think you are. In other words, you believe your, your sin and the brokenness defines you. So maybe you would wrestle, somebody then would, who, who, who battles uh, the common struggle of shame wrestles with feelings that they're different from everybody else. They struggle maybe feeling like they can never be good enough or they have no worth or they have no value. The fourth common struggle is fear, which is based in anxiousness or dread of something, of some perceived threat. So this is based on a consistent anxiety and, and can result in a basic fear that God's not pleased with you or that you have to earn his or somebody else's love, maybe a parent or somebody else. You're always worried about stuff, always think that you're going to say or do the wrong thing. Maybe you fear that you would be, if people knew the real you or knew what was going on in your life or knew what was going on in your head, they would reject you. Some people struggle with anger, which is just displeasure or hostility in response to someone or something. Anger unchecked as a struggle leads to bitterness over past circumstances or towards those who have wronged you or forgotten you. Maybe you've been in a situation where you're not the one who did something wrong, but somebody else, you know, got sideways and the consequences of their action blew back on you and you're just collateral damage that can result in becoming cynical and, and bitter. Then there's sorrow, sorrow being a deep sadness or despair from a loss or even a perceived loss. Maybe in your life you're convinced that uh, uh, you're filled with regret over what might have been. Maybe you've lost a loved one or you've had a, a dream or a hope that's been frustrated or hasn't, hasn't come to pass. And so you have despair and you really wonder, does God see me or does God even care? All these struggles are common struggles that happen and they manifest in real life ways and they result in anxiety, depression. They can result in greed, addictions. It can result in feeling like you always have to please people or, 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 or all constant feelings of loneliness or feeling like you have to manipulate to get your way, all sorts of things. From a spiritual standpoint, often we wrestle with feeling like we have to earn our way to God. We can't just receive the grace of God and the fact that we're sons and daughters of God. Maybe we wrestle with condemnation or we don't trust God or we really wonder, does God really care? Often these things are, are going on. These are the things that try to, to, that try to determine your story. And so I realize this is a little bit of a, of a long intro. Don't worry, we'll get on in time. 
But here's the thing. What the enemy seeks to do then is to take all these common struggles, to take all of your brokenness and make these the lens with which you view your life. To pigeonhole you into certain behaviors and activities so that you can never experience love, hope, peace, and joy. But God says his story is greater than. God's story is greater than fear. God's story is greater than sorrow. It's greater than bitterness. It's greater than anxiety. In other words, God's story, no matter what our experience in the present, in the material realm, we can take comfort and indeed we can rejoice because in the realm that we cannot see, God is doing his thing. And this story here in Luke chapter 1 is an example of that. So let's walk our way through it. And what we're going to do is we're going to focus on some of the central figures in this story and just see if we uh, see ourselves in that. All right, so it says here in verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all the world went to be registered, each to his own town. So Caesar Augustus is actually called the first Caesar of the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Republic had come to an end. And the reason why he's called the first Caesar of the Roman Empire is that before his time, the Roman Republic had been involved in war after war after war for centuries. Without wasting time on all the details, uh, Caesar Augustus comes along, and basically what he's able to do is he is able to win the final civil war, and he's able then uh, uh, to centralize all power to himself, and therefore actually enter in a, uh, uh, the Roman Empire enters a couple of centuries of, of peace. And the people are so appreciative not to be at war anymore that they actually, the Senate declares Caesar a god. And so that's where the title Augustus comes in because the, the title Augustus actually means holy. And so Caesar has entered in this, this time of, 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 of peace after all these centuries of war. As a matter of fact, when they, uh, after voting him the, the title of Augustus not long after that, um, another vote happened and many of the ancient cities decided that they were going to start their new year to correspond with Augustus's birthday. And so there's this declaration that was written that actually was inscribed on, a, uh, on an ancient building, and this is how it reads. It talks about Augustus saying, The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. That sounds very new agey for the ancient times. Gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Augustus has been sent to us as, uh, as our, and to our descendants as Savior. He has put it into war, and he has set all things in order. And whereas, having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all our hopes and those of earlier times. Those are lofty words for a man. 
Caesar's walking in the most profound brokenness it probably is, which is the brokenness of pride. Because when you're in the midst of the ether of pride, it never, even, it never even dawns on you that you have a blind spot somewhere. So here's Caesar, and here's Augustus, and this is the guy here at the beginning of our story. And when Caesar makes a decree, stuff happens. So he declares that everybody needs to be registered so they can be taxed. And so this is, it says it's the first registration of the Roman Empire. And what Caesar's design is, man, he wants to know how vast his empire is. But even more so than that, he wants to be able to tax even the tiniest little village and poorest person in a far-off village and make sure that they are giving Rome their due. And so, you know, that's a lot of power to be able to have, to be able to decree by yourself and cause uh, 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 millions of people to have to, to move around, and that's what's happened here. But what Caesar Augustus, for all of his glory, for being able to uh, uh, establish uh, uh, general peace in his empire, there's one thing that he was not able to do, and this is expressed by Epictetus, who was a first century pagan writer, This is what he said about the emperor. He says, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which men yearn for more than even outward peace. And what Caesar doesn't realize is that as he's making this order and this decree in order to tax everybody and everybody's scrambling around upon his order, that he actually is just a chess piece on the storyboard of God's game. God's greater story is playing out because when he, when he makes that proclamation, what he doesn't know is that a young pregnant girl in Nazareth with her betrothed is going to have to leave Nazareth and travel 80 miles to Bethlehem And in doing so, fulfilling the biblical prophecy in Micah 5.2 that says, But you, O Bethlehem, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from you shall come forth from me one who will be ruler. But Augustus doesn't realize that even though he's powerful enough to make people move and go as he pleases, and even though he's able to conquer all of his enemies and win an exterior and outward battle, there's a greater story going beyond him that actually will bring the peace of heart that men yearn for. So in verse 4, the Bible talks about Joseph. He goes up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And I think about Joseph and Mary in this particular situation. And I think about what story could be written about them if you just isolate what's able to be seen. If you don't take into consideration the story of what God is weaving, you just look at the circumstances, what would their story look like? What would they be wrestling with? Well, the cold hard facts about Joey, uh, Joseph and Mary is this, is that they were peasants, they were uneducated, poor nobodies from a small, insignificant, do-nothing town. As they are having to uproot from Nazareth, and go to Bethlehem. If they're only judging things by what's happening in the material and not considering God's story, 
They could get lost in sorrow and deep sadness for having to leave family and friends that, uh, that maybe in relationships that they had established in Nazareth, especially Mary. And then they're, uh, they're walking along this 80 miles, this cold, dark road and cold road to go to a town that they, uh, uh, and, and, to, and to seek shelter. And then when they get there, they can't find any shelter. So they end up in a basic courtyard with a bunch of barnyard animals uh, along with the wet hay, the stink of, uh, the stink of uh, animal waste and these kinds of things. They could have opened the door, you know, to just being overwhelmed with uh, a bitter, a bitterness and wondering if God's plan is really the best plan along. If you think about Mary individually, I'm sure that there are those, you know, when, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, tell, tell us another one. Mary is somewhere between 13 and 16 years old. And if Mary's story is being defined only by her circumstances or by others, then she would have to battle shame. The shame that comes from what people are saying about you. Shame for your background. Shame for your poverty. Shame for your family and your upbringing. Shame for being a teenager and finding yourself pregnant. Not being given the benefit of the doubt. Others trying to define her story and, and tell her maybe that she's a, a failure or, or, or that she should be unloved and that she's not worthy of love because of her disobedience. But Mary knows that God's story is greater than where she is, her story in the material is poor and powerless to nobody. The greater story is the fact that the angel declared to Mary that she is highly favored and that she's overshadowed by the power of God. And though in her uh, life that she's living out, she's having to travel 80 miles because she's a subject of an unmerciful earthly ruler, God's story about her is that the fact is that she is called a servant of the Lord. Others may try to define her story uh, from the shame of an illegitimate pregnancy, but God's story is that Mary, no, it's not an illegitimate pregnancy. You are carrying the Savior of the world, the Son of the Most High. See, Mary is remembering these things. Mary becomes an example of what it looks like to pivot out of allowing our, our, uh, the brokenness of our situation and to lean in and allow the story of God, the, 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 the story of, of creation and the story of redemption and understanding that the fall does not have to define our lives. So Mary, leaning into it, when the angel had spoke to her, she says to the angel, may your word to me be fulfilled because I know that no word from God would ever fail. And Mary, when she's in the midst of dealing with these harsh circumstances, when, she, when the brokenness is surrounding her, she breaks out in worship, uh, uh, she breaks out in worship and, and she begins to sing and she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Man, if I could sing, it would be so much better. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. See, Mary understands that there's a greater story behind what she's experiencing. What about Joseph? Joseph, if his story is just being, you know, defined by the brokenness and the present age, and if he doesn't understand what's going on on the behind the scenes with God's story, I think Joseph probably be feeling a rush of anger when he finds out about Mary being pregnant. As a matter of fact, we know that Joseph is confused because the Bible says that he was going to put her away quietly. 
This shows something about Joseph, though. We, we, we see that Joseph is a, is, is a graceful man and a merciful man because he's not going to make a spectacle of, of Mary. But I'm sure that he was confused, that he was disappointed, maybe a little bit depressed. Maybe he felt like he was wronged or that Mary had betrayed his trust. Maybe he would have to begin to work through some bitter disappointment at the actions of others. So what we don't know is necessarily how long was the time between Mary telling him that she was a child of the Holy Spirit and the angel visiting him? Hours, days, I don't know. But I'm sure that they were some very harsh and crushing days for him. When he decided not to press the issue with Mary, I'm sure he had to endure criticism. What? You're going to follow through with it? What are you thinking? Her shame's going to become your shame. As they're traveling around uh, down the road uh, uh, to Bethlehem, and he has his pregnant wife who's near full term, and, uh, he be, and, he, and he's impoverished and poor, and as they set up in the end, I'm sure he had to fight feelings of failure. Maybe he's doing a slow burn on the inside, wondering, man, this is not the life that I signed up for. That could have been his story, but Joseph sees his life in the context of God's greater story. There's one thing about Joseph in the scripture, um, how the scripture defines Joseph. It just uses one adjective. It just says, Joseph is faithful. Joseph is faithful to the law. And can there really be any better commendation for somebody? I mean, think about it. The, The one adjective we have for Joseph uh, written in the scripture, a scripture that uh, Luke is pinning the words, but he's being moved by the Holy Spirit. So God's opinion about Joseph is that he's faithful. He's not a failure. And it says that he's faithful to the law. And so when the angel shows up to Joseph and says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife for what is in her is from the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, the Bible says, was faithful to the law, maybe it occurs to him this scripture in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it's written that the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And when Joseph remembers that, he is snapped back and he remembers the fact that this story, this material reality, does not get the last word. There is a greater story playing out here. And though it means hardship for me and for Mary, I'm going to live my life out through the lens of that scripture. And Joseph is a faithful man. He's a spiritual man. We see this. He's a man of grace and discretion and self-control. And the reason why he is is because of his faithfulness to the Lord. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, that after the, uh, after the angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary, the Bible says that Joseph woke up and he took Mary. He responded. He took Mary home as his wife, and he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to his son. You see, Joseph is not about his glory, but he's about God's glory. So much so that he would not, uh, that he would not consummate the marriage because Joseph didn't want any way, shape, or form to compromise the glory of God and that what was being, uh, that the child that Mary was ca- uh, carrying was a divine uh, a, a divine child of God. And then we get to the shepherds. The shepherds were, you know, what's their story? The shepherd's story is this, is that they were a socially alienated class. 
The shepherds were despised. One ancient commentary says about shepherds that there was, no dis, there was no more disreputable of an occupation than that of a shepherd. They were known to be dishonest and unsavory. Some of this maybe a lot of them earned on their own right. And the reason why that is is this, is these shepherds would take these flocks, take the flocks of the owner that they worked for, and they would be out for months. And so many times some of the shepherds uh, uh, would take of the increase of the flock thinking that, they're, that, the, uh, that the owner wouldn't know it, but they would be accused of stealing uh, fl- uh, uh, from the increase of the flock. Oftentimes, they would lead their herds into other people's pastures and devour up all their resources. So this is where their reputation is coming from. By the time we get to these shepherds who are uh, in, in our particular story, they are a despised people. They're not even allowed to go and worship in the temple. Some of the commentaries I read said that some, uh, that some of these shepherds may have been actually tending to, to lambs that would be used in temple sacrifices. That lamb would have to be perfect. It couldn't have a scab. It had to be totally 100% healthy. So these shepherds would have to be extra meticulous with the care of these particular, uh, of the, these particular lambs. And I thought about that, and I'm like, man, they're, they're taking all this care to raise a lamb so somebody can go into the temple and make a sacrifice, and they're raising lambs for sacrifices that they themselves cannot even partake in. They are also religiously outcast. But then the glory of the Lord shows up. And it says that in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The word glory there means the kingly majesty of the Messiah. The kingly majesty of the Messiah. It also means weighty. This kingly majesty is the bright splendor of the holiness of God. It's, it's the character of God and the holiness of God in its most excellent uh, form. It is magnificent. It is preeminent. It is, it is God's unreserved, unadulterated, unlimited power in, uh, uh, in manifestation. It's the fullness of his love and truth. It's surrounding these shepherds. No wonder they were afraid. Because in the midst of that light of God's holiness, what's it doing? It's lighting up the darkness of their own story. And in that, and in that moment, they, they realize that they are realizing in that moment just how broken, just how sinful, just how, how uh, uh, guilty they are before a holy God. And, it, and when that brightness comes upon them, they're fearful because they are understanding maybe for the first time the incredible chasm that separates them before God. And they realize that all these little lambs, you can slaughter 100 million of them, and it still wouldn't be enough to cross that chasm to the Father. But then the angel says to them, the angel said to them in verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. I bring you good news of great joy. In other words, shepherds, don't run, don't fear. The word fear there actually means to be put to flight. Their natural reaction was to run. But the angel said, don't run, because I have good news of great joy. And this good news is greater than your story. This good news is greater than your sin. This good news is greater than your brokenness. It is so good because what is happening is so amazing. It is so awesome. It's, a, it's, it's God's great story unfolding. It's the story that is for you and for all people. It's so mighty that it changes who you are. It changes how you perceive. It changes how you relate to people. It's so powerful. It is able to redeem all those areas of brokenness and negativity in your story. It's able to redeem those things in a way that God is able to get glory from it. 
How is this even, how is this even possible? The angel says, because for unto you today is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And here's the sign. You're going to find a babe in a manger. When you find that baby, and so the, angel, the, the, the shepherds run off with haste. They respond, and they go, and they, they find this baby. And when they get to the baby, they find him in a manger. Now, most of my life, I saw the manger as just sort of a, like a nice wooden, wooden thing. It makes for a nice little Christmas scene, put some Christmas lights on it, dress it with some hay. And, uh, but actually, the manger was a feed trough that was made of stone. And they would lay hay and other things to, 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 make, to, to make it comfortable. But the, the, bay, the, the, the shepherds rush in, and there they see the babe just as the uh, angel of the Lord has told them. And this is God's great story of redemption breaking forward for you and for me because that baby wrapped in human flesh 33 years later, would wrap himself in your brokenness, your anxiety. That baby, who was fully man but also fully God, would accomplish what the first Adam was not able to accomplish, which was this, which was to show us the way that our individual story is actually set in the greater context of God's story. That he would endure every situation and temptation and embrace a human experience even in the same way that we live it out. And when he went to the cross, then he would take your pain because he encountered pain. He would be able to take our sin and our temptation and he'd be able to take it into, because the Bible says that he endured temptation yet was without sin. He would understand the, the pain of loss. He understood the pain of betrayal. He understood what it was like to be uh, frustrated and exasperated, but yet not harbor bitterness in his heart. Even when he is uh, 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 arrested in the garden, and he'd been telling his disciples over and over and over again, the Son of Man is going to be arrested, and he's going to have to go to the cross, and he's going to rise again. And the disciples had all this warning about it, and the Bible says that all of them forsook him. He didn't hold on to that betrayal, but he embraced that betrayal because he understood the aspect that what he was doing was in line with a greater than story than what was going on with him in that moment. When he was under great pressure and frustration, he understands that because he sweated uh, uh, great drops of blood under the pressure of the things that he was to endure. And so this babe represents all of this. This is what causes the great joy because then the shepherds understand that that baby, he is our salvation. The Bible talks about in the fourth chapter of God's great story, it talks about consummation. And all I want to say about that is this. I was talking with someone after the first service. They are telling me about a uh, really difficult circumstance that they had lived through. You know, all of us, I think, have probably lived through some stuff, and we're just like, what the heck? I, God, I get, you know, God, I love you. I just don't, I don't know how you're going to redeem this or get glory out of it. 
But all I know is this, is that the Bible says about this baby who became a man, who died and rose again, who sits at the right hand of the Father. One day, he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to reach into all of our past, and all that is wrong, he will make right. Because he is the one who makes new. What's your story this morning? What's your reality right now as we wind up? How's the devastation of the fall been playing out in your own life? How is sorrow, anger, fantasy, shame, guilt, how are these things, anxiety, how are these things seeking to define you and to blow up so big and large that you're not able to see the grand story that we've just read about? God's story is greater because for your sorrow, he'll give you joy. For your anger, he gives you love. For your pride, he's able to give you humility. For shame, he gives us hope. And for guilt and fear, he gives us peace. The only question is, is there room in the end of your heart to be refreshed in the Savior's love? I said earlier that 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 manger was made of stone. The Bible talks about that when the Savior would come, that he would take out the heart of stone and give us the heart of flesh. God wants to redeem your story. You know, all of us, you know, many of you sitting in here is like, man, well, I've placed my faith and my trust in Christ. I know, God, I know, Jesus, I, I know that I'm going to be going to heaven, but salvation is so much more than just a guarantee of eternal life. It's the understanding that the Lord understands every inch, every second of your life, and he understands the glories, and, and, he, and he's well acquainted with the griefs, and he so desperately wants you to experience his hope, his peace, his mercy, his love. He so desperately wants us to define our story through his story of redemption.